Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to 2021. This is Ian. We're doing a wrap on the paradigm shift for 2020. In 2020 saw a shift in priorities for people around the world. At the beginning, climate change was in people's minds, but at the end, it has been the COVID pandemic. Both emergencies appear intractable. It makes me wonder whether humans are capable of advancing much further in thinking and doing and in solving our problems. A sustainable future with social justice at its core is a long way off. Like a turning river, direction is hard to find. Here in Australia, we enter 2021 with a major trade war with the most productive country on earth, and that is China. There will be a conference of arms dealers in Brisbane early in 2021, sanctioned by state and federal governments. Now that's a pathway to peace. 2020 was a turning point in the Middle East, with the Zionist State of Israel launching attacks on Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and in, jo in Jerusalem itself, supported this year by a deranged American president. Cuba marked 60 years of resistance against capitalism. Its institute of friendship with the people of the world is to promote solidarity. 4ZZZ celebrated its 45th birthday, one of Queensland's, nay, Australia's independent radio stations born from the anti-war movement in the 1970s and supporting progressive movements in the 2020s. We saw a, uni a unique form of resistance to the Australian government's inhumane treatment of refugees at a local hotel come prison at Kangaroo Point this year. Paradigm shift was there on the ground when it all started. One of the longest picket lines in recent memory. So let's go to Andy's interview with Farhad, whom the Australian government had locked up for eight years for lawfully seeking asylum in Australia. Could you start by introducing yourself? My name is Farhad. I'm originally from Iran, a civil engineer, and currently located in uh, Kangaroo Point Hotel in Brisbane. It's been a long journey from Iran to Brisbane. Can you tell us a bit about how you ended up as an asylum seeker here in Australia? Yes. Uh, actually, I came to Australia shores in 2013, and almost seven years ago. And uh, when we arrived at uh, Christmas Island, we were told by officials, which was immigration, 
that whoever uh, came to Australia after a policy, so-called 19 July policy, they will never be resettled in Australia. So something around uh, something around 4,500 of us arrived uh, after that policy. So they divided us randomly to uh, three groups. One group were sent to Manus Island, something around 1,500. Another one, almost same number, to Nauru, which is another uh, Pacific uh, country. And 1,400 were kept back in uh, Christmas Island. Despite of being told that whoever comes after this policy, uh, those who stayed back in, uh, those who kept back in uh, Christmas Island, they, they were released after 18 months into a uh, community in Australia, different cities. But for us, uh, it's completely a different story. We were exiled, we were banished on these two islands, and we went, we went through a lot in those islands. So finally, last year, as a result of uh, Medivac bill, some of us were uh, brought here to Australia, some here in uh, Brisbane, some in Melbourne, so we all came because of the Medivac bill. And since then, which was uh, for me personally, was uh, July last year. So exactly six years after the 2013 July policy, I ended up in Australia. And then after that, I've been, I mean, since then I've been kept in either Waita, uh, which is Brisbane Immigration Transit Accommodation, or as uh, in APOD, which is some some kind of alternative accommodation uh, here in Brisbane. Yes, that's my mm. short story. So it was only because you needed medical attention that you were ever brought to Australia. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, <coughs> before that, you were on Manus Island. Yes, on Manus Island. So that was a, a long time, six years on Manus Island. Yes, I ended up uh, in Manus Island. On, uh, actually, I was transferred there forcefully by, uh, at the end of August 2013 and then left PNG uh, on last year, July. So almost six years. Mm. And... I mean, it was a very uh, bare place of accommodation, the detention centre at Manus Island. There were issues over the years with uh, violence from the locals and uh, a lot of mental health issues with people that were stuck there at Manus Island. How did you find that time? Well, to be honest, that was, that was a very challenging time. Now, when I think about, you know, when I drag myself to past six years, sometimes I'm just uh, amazed how, how did I survive that super tough situation on Manus Island? Yes, we experienced a lot. And you know, I was actually, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, only a few days ago who is in, in the US now. 
And I, I told him about our daily protest here in Kangaroo Point, which we, we hold every day around 4.30. And he, he told me he's been there for like a year. And he said, whatever comes to my mind when I talk about Australia is detention center and holding peaceful protests. That was his memory. And that tells me something. Yes, past six years, was very challenging uh, situation for us. I lost, we lost uh, some of our friends. Either they were killed on Manus Island by locals or cars, or uh, they were uh, abandoned, those who had you know, uh, medical issues. One guy at least, he was just abandoned there and no one cared about him and he passed away as a result of a simple infection in 2015. A guy, uh, actually these two that I'm talking, they were my friends. He was killed, uh, the first one was killed in 2014 when locals and security guards attacked our compound and bashed us really badly. And then the, the other one was died actually as a result of medical uh, negligence. And then finally, uh, we lost a lot, 12, I guess, 12 or 13 on both islands. And the last person who unfortunately committed suicide last year here in Brisbane, a, a medical doctor who, who used to be my roommate in uh, Manus Island. We shared a room together for almost two years very sweet guy, very uh, polite, passionate person. He had a lot of dreams for his future, but he ended up having mental issues. And last year, unfortunately, uh, he committed suicide and uh, put an end on, on his misery life. Mm. Yeah, um, sorry, that's a bit, uh, you know, sad, and I don't want to make your uh, listeners uh, sad about my uh, my journey. No, it is sad. It's been a, a terrible seven years that Australia should be ashamed of and everybody like you who has made it through and is still going uh, has done an amazing job and um, I, I admire you. your strength that you've done that. Thank you. Okay, this is the end from the Paradigm Shift. We're down here at the KP prison. There's a whole lot of people in the semi-darkness now on the balconies listening to this concert. Coming from uh, a group of young women. Let's have a listen to the next song. Eh? Traveling in a Friday for me On a hippie trail ahead full of zombies I met a strange lady She made me nervous
Dorothy and Friends at KP Prison singing a, a satirical version of the Men at Work song Down Under. By the way, all the music in today's Paradigm Shift is live, captured at demonstrations and venues during the COVID crisis. Some of the recordings may not be that great. For example, the last song, this is no reflection on the artist's more a reflection on my ordinary handheld Zoom by, by yours truly. Anyway, next up, we're going to be talking about Aboriginal farmers. Uh, this is an interview that Andy did earlier this year with Bruce Pascoe, talking about his theory that Aboriginal people were not hunters and gatherers, but a society of sustainable horticulturalists growing grains, yams, and tubers. This theory is corroborated by the early colonialists, James Kirby, George Augustus Robinson, explorers Mitchell and Sturt, and my own ancestor, Edward M. Kerr, who wrote in his nostalgic memoir of squatting in Victoria that his cartwheels turned up tubers. Kerr recognised that it was his sheep that destroyed native yam crops cultivated by tribes living along the Murray River. It was these words that awaken the whispering in our hearts for First Nations people. Let's go to Andy and Bruce now. Bruce, of course, is the author of the famous book, Dark Emu. Could you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Bruce Pascoe. Um, I'm a Ewan, Panalapana and Bunrong man. Uh, our heritage goes from Tasmania uh, to the south coast of New South Wales. And you're an author. You've written over your life uh, mostly novels, but uh, quite notably in the last few years you wrote a history book, Dark Emu. What was the inspiration of moving into the, the realm of non-fiction? Uh, well... It was uh, the fact that I couldn't find any Australian histories which described the experience of my own family. And um, so I decided I would have to write a history which 
talked about how Aboriginal people actually experienced colonialism. And uh, as part of this history, it involves digging up, I guess, elements of Aboriginal culture that haven't been covered in history before, some of the, the technology and the agriculture techniques and things like this that were a part of Aboriginal life but have been not recorded by traditional historians. Is that right? That's right. I, um, I wrote a book on the contact wars of Australia before Dark Emu called Convincing Ground and the information I was finding out there, while not particularly relevant to the uh, contact wars, it was really disturbing me because they were talking about what uh, explorers and um, Australian farming pioneers, so-called pioneers, were witnessing of um, Aboriginal people's land use. And so much of it was a complete culture shock to me. Um, I was ashamed uh, as an Aboriginal person not to have known this. So I was finding out about Aboriginal people uh, tilling land that was so vast it reached to the horizon, uh, stooking and harvesting grain, that uh, stooks of which went across country for nine miles, all of these things which just didn't fit with the hunt, hunter-gatherer myth that we'd been told by our forefathers and our educators. So I was more or less um, stuck with having to write that book. So you, you said that it was almost by accident you came across this in the accounts of early settlers. Was it difficult finding this information? No, that's the, that's the shameful thing. Um, it's all on the public record. And most of the things I've found out, you can walk into your local library and find out because they're in the major explorers' journals. Uh, there were some other things which um, I had to dig a little deeper for, but even if you just read the explorers' journals, that information's there. Uh, the two examples I gave you are in Mitchell and Sturt. And, and the thing that really worried me was that I wasn't the first person to have read these accounts. So other people had read them before me and not considered those facts significant for Australia. Um, I think... Perhaps my advantage was that I was looking at it from an Aboriginal point of view, so it did interest me anyway. But it's still depressing to think of all those professors that went before me reading those things and not seeing it being of any interest to uh, Australia. You know, our history, as taught to me when I was at school and university, was pretty boring. You know, you get enough of wheat, wool and gold. And, uh, you know, this other information would have been fascinating. And when I start, when I talk to young Australians about it, between the ages of five and 25, they're fascinated because they didn't know it. It's interesting stuff in its own right. It talks about human development that goes back a long, long time, long, longer than any other place on Earth. And... Naturally, people are interested in it because it talks to them about the human experience, the human history, and um, I'm just glad that we're now starting to have that conversation. You said that for you as an Aboriginal person, you'd never heard this before and it was new information. 
Is that the case for, for most Aboriginal people across Australia, that these histories are, are lost even to them, or are there some places yeah. that have a memory of... Most people, most Aboriginal people didn't know this stuff because they'd had an Australian education and they'd lived under Australian political rule. So you don't find out these things because the whole myth of the colonisation is against you being able to uh, learn these things. So since I've been speaking about it, though, Aboriginal people have contacted me, um, and that, this happened after convincing ground as well, because I I learned a lot about massacres that had never been recorded, and were, including one that's, you know, an hour and a half drive from where I live, which involved members of my own family. And that was very disturbing to know that I was living on a country that had had that experience for my own family was very disturbing but aboriginal people started writing to me before and after dark emu come out with incredible information about how our people managed the land and how we managed crops and how we managed food production how we managed food preservation and food storage and these things you just don't hear about in uh, years one and two at university you know, and we ought to. It's Australian history, and our young people ought to know these things. And it shouldn't be hidden from them, and it has been deliberately hidden from them. What are the implications for Aboriginal people now learning this information? Well, I'm I'm very very impressed by young Australians, and I'm very impressed by young Aboriginal Australians too, and these are people who are more likely to be worried about plastics in the ocean, uh, degradation of the sea and degradation of the land and more worried about what we're doing to refugees. So these people, both black and white, are interested in these ideas from a social justice point of view. So it's a refreshing conversation for someone as old as me um, to have this kind of discussion with young Australians because my own generation is pretty hopeless and... You know, to be cheered up at this end of my life is a great thing. Southern sun. 
Portable Z 102.1 Paradigm Shift. That was Mojo Juju with Native Tongue. Yes, and this is Ian. We're doing a wrap on the Paradigm Shift for 2020, and it was very interesting that I just was reading off air there uh, Mojo's history there. She's a Wiradjuri woman uh, coming from central New South Wales, which is where my ancestors settled along the Lachlan River, uh, the the Murray, and further south, the Goulburn River. I, I think that she has a, a very good point in that she's talking here about how important traditions are and families, family histories give you an insight into your own identity. And for her, songwriting is a huge part of keeping those oral traditions alive. Let's let's move on and uh, go to the next part of this wrap for 2020, which of course uh, we covered the Assange extradition trial, and we saw that both the United States and the British government have combined to try to silence the independent press. Its genesis was in the video released by WikiLeaks about murders by. American helicopter gunship pilots. They killed a Reuters journalist, some Iraqi civilians, and small children. This is the famous collateral murder tape that was released by Chelsea Manning, who has served over six years in prison for her trouble. 
The video was published in 2010 by Julian Assange, an Australian citizen, and the authorities are still hunting him down for telling the truth about the dirty war prosecuted by the US, Britain, Australia, and a number of other suspects. So let's go to one of the American soldiers on the ground during the attack by the helicopter gunship. That soldier was Ethan McCord, and he explains the true nature of that war of genocide. I'm going to basically tell the story of basically, you know, what happened that day. Um, we were uh, in Kamalaya, Iraq. Um, we were tasked out that morning to do knock and searches. Um, the Apaches were uh, providing overwatch for us. Um, we had a small firefight, um, probably about four to five blocks away from uh, where this incident took place. Um, uh, we heard the Apaches open fire, and, and what you have to understand is the Apaches, they don't shoot just like little little rounds. They shoot 30-millimeter rounds, which are about that big. Um, I didn't know what was going on at the time. I was just told to move to that position. Um, I was on foot and when one of the first six guys to run up onto the scene, and what I saw was um, a, a group of men on the corner um, who had been completely obliterated. Um, these rounds explode when they hit. And um, to me, at, at, the, at the time, they didn't look human. Um, they, uh, they looked like something you would actually see out of, a, out of a bad horror movie, like, oh, this can't be real. I don't know if I thought that, you know, maybe my, my emotions were kind of shutting everything down and saying, okay, this can't be real. Um, but... Uh, one of the first things I remember hearing was a little girl crying. And uh, I, I knew that the cry was coming from the van that was there. And uh, I ran up to the passenger side door with one of the privates who was with me. And um, we looked inside the van. And uh, the, the private that I was with uh, started vomiting and ran away because he couldn't bear to look at the children the way they were. Um, and what I saw was a little girl. She was probably about four years old sitting on the bench seat. Um, with a severe belly wound and glass in her hair and in her eyes. She couldn't blink or close her eyes and she was she was crying like um, it wasn't a pain cry. It was a cry that um, me having children, knowing that my daughter was the same age as this little girl, um, waking up from a horrible nightmare in the middle of the night and uh, just it was it was almost blood curdling. Um, next to her uh, in the middle of the, the bench seat, half on the floorboard with his head resting on the bench seat, was a boy about seven years old. I, uh, I immediately thought he was dead because he had a severe wound to the right side of his head. 
Um, and in the driver's seat was who I assumed was the father, the way he was hunched over them in a protective manner. Um, and he was completely destroyed. There was no way that he had survived. Um, I grabbed the little girl out of the van, um, yelled for a medic, and we took her to the house that was directly behind the vehicle um, where I took off my gloves, um, got water, and uh, rinsed the wounds, checked for any exit wounds, other, other wounds that she might have had, and um, was picking glass out of her eyes with my hands um, so that she can blink. Um, that's when in the video you can hear the medic say that there's nothing else we can do here. She needs to be evac'd. Um, I, he takes the little girl and he runs her to the Bradley. I go back outside um, to the van and, uh, you know, I don't know actually why I went to the van. Um, I thought that the boy was dead and the father was dead, but when I went back out there, uh, the boy took a labored breath. And uh, that's when I started screaming out that the boy's alive, the boy's alive. And uh, I picked him up in my arms and um, started running towards the Bradley with him um, the whole time telling him, you know, it's going to be okay, don't die, don't die. And uh, at this point, he, he looked up at me his, uh, just for a split second, then his eyes rolled back into his head. And uh, at, that, at that moment, I thought he had died in my arms. But uh, I got him to the Bradley. And when I took him to the Bradley, uh, my commanding officer or my platoon leader was there. And uh, he told me that I needed to quit worrying about these uh, MF and kids and to go pull security. Um, at the time, the only thing I could think of was, you know, roger that, and, and I went to pull security. Um, while sitting on the rooftop, uh, I could hear them firing the Hellfire missiles into houses. Um, I saw the pictures of um, the families that were in these buildings. Um, there were no armed men in these buildings. They were just families, uh, women, children um, who were killed. Uh, I got um, back to the FOB later that day, and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, there's no way that we did that. You know, it had to have been the men on the corner. There was one guy who had an RPG and one guy who had an AK-47. And, uh, you know, from being over there, you're like, okay, well, these guys are obviously insurgents if they have weapons, um, not knowing that these other men were cameramen. And, and what frequently happens in Iraq is if there's a person with a camera, people will come out of their homes and say, hey, look at me, this is what I have, put me on TV, put me on the news, um, make me famous, now pay me for my picture. Um, there was no RPG rounds in the RPG. Um, so that, to me, my reaction is that I don't think that they were armed to fight us, they were just showing off for the, the cameramen that were there. Um, but later on that night in the fob, while I was washing the blood of the children off of me, um, I couldn't really cope with it. I, I was having a hard time dealing with the fact that we did that, the Apaches did that. Um, so I, I went to my staff sergeant who was in my line, um, in my chain of command, and I told him, I, I think I need to see mental health. I need to go talk to somebody because I'm having a hard time dealing with uh, what I had just seen, what I had witnessed, what I was a part of. And he laughed at me and uh, told me to get the sand out of my vagina and to quit being a pussy and to suck it up and to be a soldier. And uh, so, you know, you, 
you kind of like, okay, well, there's nothing else I can do. So you just kind of do, you kind of suck it up, you push everything down, you bottle it up. But that anger and that rage sits inside you and it gets to the point where it just bubbles over and uh, you get so angry that you start yelling at people who don't deserve it, family members, um, your privates, um, soldiers who are who are your brothers. And, uh, you know, that was just one incident. And I've been saying this for a long time. That was one incident of many that you guys got to see. Mm-hmm. Um, things like this happened almost on a daily basis in Iraq. It may not have been an Apache. It could have been a Bradley. I saw a Bradley fire on a on a, a van load of children, nothing more than children, and watched the Iraqi police pull bodies out, um, pieces of children, and the whole time they're looking at us shaking their heads. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, that was, that was one incident, but you guys can see from that one incident that we shouldn't be there, mm-hmm. that we're over there and we're killing innocent people. These are people who are only trying to live their lives and the best that they can during an occupation. Um, I got out of the army in 2009. I was uh, blown up in Iraq in November of 2007. I came home. Um, my spine was broken. I had metal rods and pins in my back. Um, the Army kicked me out on a Chapter 517, which states that everything that I had, my traumatic brain injury, my PTSD, and my uh, my broken spine, uh, were all pre-existing conditions before I joined the military. Um, so I got no benefits from the Army um, whatsoever. And, and I'm not the only one. This has happened to over 250,000 soldiers coming home from, from war. They're saying that, oh, they obviously had this PTSD long before they joined the army. Um, And, you know, it's not only are the people of Iraq and Afghanistan the victims, but soldiers are the victims themselves. They are being victimized every day, whether they have post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or military sexual trauma. They're being placed right back into the same traumas that, that got them that to begin with. They're four or five deployments. Um, you know, soldiers are just as much the victims. And, and once, once I realized that I was being victimized from the military and that they were using me, using what... I grew up very conservative. I grew up thinking, you know, it's my it's my duty to serve the mili- in the military. Um, when 9/11 happened, I ran out and I joined the military. I, I have to go serve. I have to go fight the Muslims who 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 uh, attacked uh, mm-hmm. us on 9/11. And what I found strange is when I got to Iraq, is I felt that I had more in common with the people over there than I did with the people who sent me to war to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. That day especially, the collateral murder video, um, I could no longer justify why I was in Iraq, what we were doing in Iraq. Um, I was just watching innocent men, women, and children being slaughtered. Um, There were no so-called insurgents. We would drive around waiting to start something. 
cold Pleading guilty shouldn't have to The truth be told should be floating down parade rules The truth was told and what good did that do But if it was you That is Kevin Devine there with Private First Class, a song dedicated to uh, Chelsea Manning, who did release that collateral murder video before the song. You heard Ethan McCord, who was an eyewitness to um, what took place in the video, which was later dubbed Collateral Murder, released by WikiLeaks in 2010. and uh, Chelsea Manning, the person who leaked it, ended up in prison for a long time, six years in prison, a couple of them, or the first 10 months in solitary confinement, um, was sentenced to uh, 45 years in prison, but was later had the sentence commuted by Barack Obama. But Chelsea then later ended up in um in prison again before refusing to testify against Julian Assange in Julian's uh, in the case of extradition. And so uh, under the grand jury laws in the US, Chelsea was imprisoned again. Uh, it's certainly been quite a sacrifice and an act of courage releasing that video. You're on the paradigm shift and we're doing a wrap on 2020. The next thing is uh, something that nearly slipped under the radar it was uh, Griffith University is decided to defund the Queensland College of Art and this is falling into a bit of a pattern where both state and federal governments are continuing to attack public tertiary education. 
Now, this story um, is about a grassroots group at Griffith Uni who have drawn to our attention the impact that that will have on both arts and culture in Brisbane and in, in really in Australia. The federal government has already upped the fees to be paid by students for art degrees. Um, the cost of a humanities degree will double and that's under an order by the federal government earlier this year. So let's go to 4ZZZ's Beck Mack who is interviewing one of the lecturers at the Queensland College of Art, Matthew Newkirk, about this recent development. Hi, Beck Mack here for Pops Art and I am at the Queensland College of Art to talk to Matthew Newkirk here about the shocking proposed cuts by Griffith University to the Queensland College of Art. Now the Queensland College of Art is renowned around the world for its staff and it's for graduated alumni who have worked across diverse industries, top of the game. And myself went there in the 80s, believe it or not. And so um, it's a, got a special place in my heart. Now, thanks for taking the time to have a chat, Matthew. I know you're really busy, but can you just give us a brief overview of the impacts of these cuts to QCA? Sure. Uh, the proposed cuts from QCA are suggesting that uh, two studios are closed, the printmaking studio, jewellery and small objects, along with getting rid of two parts of the Bachelor of Photography degree, advertising and photojournalism, uh, and also creative, in, uh, creative media is being taken down to a minor, along with other funding and staff cuts. So have you got any numbers on potentially how many, how many staff members will lose their work? Yeah, look, Beck, if, if this goes through, this is based on full-time staff alone. Uh, if these proposals go through, then 44% of the full-time staff here at QCA will lose their jobs. Uh, and that's not counting sessional staff or teachers' aides, who often do a lot of the heavy lifting here at QCA and teach, you know, first or second year classes, for instance. Wow. How incredibly disabling for the actual institution to, to do its business. And also, what, what's been the impact on the, on the students? Well, I think the, the, the students have uh, felt like they're not too sure whether uh, Griffith is supporting the, the arts nowadays. Uh, so there'll be a direct uh, effect to them, uh, students who were looking to study printmaking perhaps next year or in the future, oncoming students and uh, particularly uh, HDR, higher degree research, uh, researchers like myself, uh, access to facilities. Yeah, yeah. Now, this college uh, was uh, created in 1881. I'm sure it's seen so many challenges and changes, but it's been incredibly influential on the development of Queensland as a state, as a cultural state, has the most amazing amount of artists have emerged from QCA. You've told us about the impacts on the uh, staff and the students, but this will have an incredible impact on the cultural capacity of Queensland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that you know, there's, a, there's a huge flow-on effect from these proposed closures. Uh, for instance, the printmaking studio, uh, the alumni that have, that have uh, produced work there, particularly uh, alumni from KAIA, the Contemporary Australian Indigenous Art Program that we have here, which is one of a kind, uh, a, lot of those, uh, a lot of those students will utilise print and jewellery as part of their undergraduate and uh, the, the alumni that has come from them and the rest of, the, of QCA as well uh, will, will suffer. Names like uh, Michael Zavros or people that have come from KAIA like Fiona Foley or Judy Watson all utilise the print studio. Yeah, And I guess also 
if you can't get those courses here, people will just migrate to the south, which has always been an issue for Queensland, keeping its artists here, keeping its artists working in Queensland. So if this closes down to that, to that extent, we're going to have an incredible talent drain and that's a really big issue. Yeah, I think that that's huge. Like Griffith offers some one-of-a-kind uh, courses here in Queensland and a lot of the other courses such as jewellery and uh, some of the specialised photography courses are only offered at a handful of places in the, in the rest of Australia. So the, you know, the, the flow-on from that will be enormous, I think. And surely on the global stage of the world, uh, the reputation of Griffith University will be really um, diminished by these uh, choices? Well, I think that's something that's a concern to uh, you know the students and particularly the the higher degree research students or the postgraduate students is that um, you know the integrity and the the reputation that Griffith has as a university to support the arts will be diminished, and so therefore you know the the brand that we research and work under um, won't be as valued on the international stage. Yeah. Now, I've been watching this um, uh, evolve on uh, social media, and Pat Hoffy's been doing some really really great critical writing around it and one thing that really stood out to me was the um, the importance of the studio practice for the artists and for the students. Can you just give us a little bit of insight into why that's so crucial? I think as an artist, like you know, as a creative, uh, you do make investigations and you do need a, a place where you can work and make mistakes. Uh, that's that's how your, your practice develops through that process. So to reduce everything to a you know, a, a Zoom meeting essentially, like that, uh, you know, it's not beneficial for the arts here in Queensland and for the culture that spreads beyond the university here. The flow on is enormous. Yeah. And I mean, to me, this seems like very short sighted. It seems very knee jerk. And I mean, I. I'm really concerned around what's happening to Australia at the moment. There seems to be a culture war. The federal government's targeting the arts in the way it's structuring university fees. Uh, during COVID, they have given hardly any uh, consideration to the precarity of the arts as an industry and the people that work in it. What do you feel this is about? Am I alluding to something that's not there? Or what, what's your personal feelings on, on what this is all about? Well, look, I think that, you know, people can speculate about where these, you know, these decisions are made, but I think you're right as well. Like, when you look at, uh, when you look at a broader scale, like the federal government uh, folding the arts portfolio into something like transport or whatever, again, the, the budget that was just recently uh, released that has very little to do with arts at all, um, COVID... You know, COVID has been a horrible thing that we've all had to deal with. But uh, at the same time, I think that you know this is a climate where you can kind of throw any sort of agenda that you want at COVID. And uh, again, I just hope that uh, Griffith maintains its support of creative arts. When it joined with QCA back in '91, it made a commitment to uh, creative arts here in Queensland and nationally. And uh, we would just like them to, to you know to uphold to, to uphold that. So it sounds like everyone in the community needs to support uh, what's happening here and get behind the students and the staff and the culture of Queensland and also the incredible history that the QCA has created so that the future can be as strong and as influential. So what would you like um, to say to everyone out there? What can they do today to help out? If you're, if you're concerned about what's going on, there's a, a Facebook group which is community, alumni and uh, and uh, current students at the moment, if you search for that, that's where a small group of alumni, students and postgrads are putting together uh, a response to this proposal. So uh, join that group, 
stay up to date. There's a petition that's going to be delivered to the Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University. Sign the petition, share it amongst your networks, spread it far and wide, and let's let uh, the university know that the arts are valued here in Queensland. Absolutely. And just quickly, there's a deadline on that, so there's not much time to really get this uh, activated. That's right. The response to this has to be in by the 27th of November. So jump on your computers straight away, download the posters, spread them far and wide, get onto that petition, spread it through your networks, and uh, hopefully we'll see a really good outcome from this. Yeah, well, well done. And do everything he said. <laughs> we can save it. And if not, then we'll come up with another plan. And it'll be even more amazing. Uh-huh. Thank you everyone for your support and for you know keeping this community going. I think in times like these it's it's where we realize that we need each other the most. So it's a it's an absolute privilege to be here tonight. Thanks again. We're going to finish on this song, a song called Exploring the Blue. Here we go.
was a beautiful song, Exploring the Blue, by Sarah Calderwood and Paul Brandon, playing live at Foco Nuevo uh, during COVID. They have had these house concerts, which they stream on Facebook and also YouTube, and you can see them and hear them every month on Fridays, first Friday of the month. Uh, they usually they kick off at about eight o'clock. And we're going to go out with their last song uh, of the host band. It's called Jumping Fences, and that's called Satellites. That's 2020 from the Paradigm Shift. See ya. So we're going to finish our bracket with a song that's the title track of our last CD, uh, Satellites. There might be enough clear sky, no clouds around, that you can see the Seven Sisters, maybe.
try.